0: you found yourself just going through the motions in worship. Was it this morning? Right? Maybe you came to church this morning feeling tired and distracted, shuffled in a little bit late, kind of shook a few hands out of habit, and you're still wondering if you should have even been here. I mean, we all got an extra hour of sleep, so that means I'm going to preach an extra hour. But really, the worship band played songs that some of you could sing in your sleep. Um, And your mind maybe already wandered a few times as you checked your social media on your phone. Or perhaps you did make it on time. Perhaps you made it on time. You found your usual spot and you even mouthed some of the lyrics that showed up on the screen. But your heart wasn't engaged. You were not in it. And if you're being honest with yourself, maybe your heart hasn't been engaged for quite some time weeks, months, years, maybe even decades. You follow along with the motions of worship, but the fellowship no longer encourages you. The worship songs no longer stir you. The sermons no longer motivate you. You can remember those good old days when you were so grateful to gather and sing and encounter God's greatness, but somewhere along the way, your Sunday morning worship has just become the religious activity checklist on your to-do list. See, the truth is, it's harder than we care to admit, any one of us, to stay engaged Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It's, it's a challenge to maintain that uh, joyful heart of gratitude over time, because singing songs can simply become mindless repetition. Saying prayers can grow stale and distracted. Our praise and thanksgiving can grow increasingly hollow. Even communion itself can lose its meaning to us in the endless cycle of church routine. Thankfully, though, we're, we're not alone. We're not the first ones to struggle with something like this. See, this morning we're going to examine Psalm chapter 50. The 50th Psalm, Psalm 50, where we see the ancient Israelites falling into the same rut, having the same struggles that we have. So this morning, now we come then to week five in our sermon series that we're calling Holy Roar. Now, in this sermon series, we're looking at some of the different Hebrew words uh, in the Old Testament that are translated as the word praise, and we're looking at eight of them. So, so far, we've uncovered uh, the rich meaning, week one, behind uh, the word, the Hebrew word yada yada, and that means to publicly declare, to publicly confess what God has done for you. Then we looked at the word halal from hallelujah. And that means to celebrate God, to boast in him through singing, through dancing, through music, through prayer. And then Pastor James, two weeks ago, uh, brought us the word Shabbat. Shabbat, which means to express praise loudly, like, like a lion's roar. And last week, Pastor Dave brought us the word Barak. Barak, which means to adore God from, from the place of bended knee. So this morning, we arrived then at the fifth Hebrew word, we're learning the fifth Hebrew word. We're learning is the Hebrew word called toda, toda. Now, I, as I did a couple weeks ago, I'll kind of break it down. Remember, Hebrew you read right to left. Uh, so on the right side there, you have uh, uh, tav, and uh, so, so that right there is considered uh, it's pronounced to on, on the right side, and then all the way on the left side of the word, you have the dalit and the hay and that's pronounced da, so, so "toda." say that, "Toda." "Toda." toda. toda. hey yeah, you guys got it, "Toda." <laughs> Had fun with my dad, but that won the first service. <laughs> See, "toda" is uh, often translated as praise in our Old Testaments, but in Psalm 50, um, it's actually translated as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's what it's translated as. So we actually don't find the word praise in Psalm 50. Instead, we see a, a, a Hebrew word that's often translated praise, but here it's translated as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So the definition of todah, then it's a sacrifice of grateful praise offered to God. And in many times, it has the, the connotation of uh, the extension of the hand in adoration or avowal to God. Now, the word here is, is very unique out of the eight words we're going to be looking at, because this word was also used to refer to one of the offerings where uh, an Israelite would come before God and present a free will offering, um, oftentimes an animal sacrifice to God, and they would do this voluntarily. It wasn't a mandatory sin offering. It wasn't a, one of their mandatory trespass offerings. This was a free will offering of a person who wanted to express their deep gratitude to God as a means of, of, of just... Uh, of, fellowshipping and and communing with god and expressing intimacy and dependence on him see this was a deeply personal offering that that really emphasized the personal relationship between the creator and his creation So what would happen then in these thanksgiving offerings, these thanks offerings, is the person would bring the animal sacrifice to the temple. They'd bring the animal sacrifice to the high priest. The high priest then would take pieces of the offering and uh, go up to the altar and lift them over the altar and wave them over the altar. And possibly uh, that's where that uh, other definition for todah comes with the extension of the hand. Um, It's todah if if you're worshiping like this. So then, after the portions of those animals were consecrated to God, the rest of the animal um, would be shared for a meal with all of the worshipers who were present there. So they would fellowship with one another and enjoy that feast, and that was symbolic of the fellowship that they're also enjoying with God in their personal relationships. So, now this is all important to understand because this provides the context uh, for grasping the, the kind of worship, the kind of praise that God truly desires from us, right? He's not interested in rote religion. He, he wants you. He wants me. He wants your love. He wants your affection. He wants your loyalty. He wants your gratitude. He wants your, your intimate sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's what God desires, your heart, you. So in Psalm 50, we see God rebuking the empty worship, the empty praise of his people, and he rebukes our empty praise. He confronts us in this psalm with the reality that genuine faith is going to express itself in grateful praise. Genuine faith will always express itself in a life of grateful praise. The fruits of genuine faith is a life of grateful praise. Now, this psalm um, is laid out in such a way and written in such a way that it, it paints this picture of a divine courtroom drama. So picture in your mind this heavenly courtroom, and God stands as the judge in this divine courtroom, and he issues a summons to his people to give an account for their thankless, ungrateful, heartless, worthless worship. So we look at scene one, then, in this courtroom drama. In scene one, we see the courtroom is set, and we see this in the first six verses. The curtains sweep back, and the divine judge starts with his his, uh, sentencing. Verse 1, Psalm 50, verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. See, right off the bat, we're confronted with God, with who God is, with his greatness, with his magnificence. See, because when we forget who God is, when we forget what he can do, we're flirting with danger. We're standing on dangerous ground. So the psalm opens by confronting our our spiritual amnesia, reminding us who God is. God is the mighty one, God, the Lord, Yahweh. He's the all-powerful, covenant-keeping God of Israel, and he's the father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is the, the, the God that we're talking about here is the same God that we're worshiping this very morning. He's the only supreme, infinite, eternally self-aware being who has no beginning, has no end. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's unchanging. And there's nobody in the universe greater than him. This is our God. He's the most loving, most holy, most wise, most logical, most righteous, most merciful, most gracious being in all of existence. And here, Then we see him commanding our full attention as he thunders from Zion in his perfect righteousness, calling on the whole earth to appear as witnesses before him in his courtroom. So verse 3 goes on and says, Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people see, so here we see more things about God, that he's not some distant, disengaged, lazy being who doesn't concern himself with his people. That's not who God is. He's active. God's always on the move. He's always involved in the world. He's always working out in the details of our lives. And this time, he takes the role of the perfect judge that he is. He's lighting the world with his righteous, devouring fire, as it says there. And he calls heaven and earth, to be his witnesses and his jury in this heavenly trial. Then, the Galva falls, shaking the courtroom. The divine judge calls the accused to take a stand. Verses 5 and 6. He says, Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. See, the ones being accused here are God's covenant people. Israel. Uh, followers of Christ now. And because of the strong language that we see here in the psalm, you'd think that God is presiding as a judge over unbelievers, over those who are far from him, over those who don't know him. But he's not. He's bringing accusations here against his own children. Why? See, because relationship with God heightens our responsibility to God. Our relationship with God heightens our responsibility to God. He's our father. We're his children. We have a greater responsibility. The same way I wouldn't expect your child to obey me or to show loyalty to me. I would expect my own children to obey me, to show loyalty to me. Why? Because of the special relationship that we have. I'm their father. They're my children. And that increases their responsibility to me. So the saints here have let their hearts wander away. Yet, before anybody could accuse God of being unjust or unmerciful or unloving or unkind, we're reminded in verse 6 that all creation testifies that the judge of this court is, in fact, righteous. He says, The heavens declare his righteousness. There's no injustice that could taint God's flawless character. Whatever his verdict will be, it's going to be right. It's going to be true. It will be just. So we see then in these first six verses that as the courtroom is set, we're reminded just how incredibly big God is and just how small we are in comparison. You see, God's greatness, God's glory are the starting points for our gratitude. Really comprehending, we're trying to comprehend who God is. You can't be anything but grateful as your mind struggles to wrap around his immensity For only when we see God, for who he truly is, that that God is God, and when we understand ourselves in relation to him, that God is God and we are not, only then will we be compelled to live a life of grateful praise. Only then will every pretense and every excuse melt away before his blinding holiness, and only then will any apathy, will any indifference disappear before his illuminating presence. See, God's glorious splendor demands our grateful praise. And then we turn to the next scene in this divine courtroom drama. Now that the courtroom has been set, it's time for the charges to be read. And the first charge then that God brings against Israel is this. Behind their religious routine hid hollow worship. Behind their religious routine hid hollow worship. See, they did the right things they were impressive in all of their religious works and all of their activity but they did these things for the wrong reasons their hearts were completely disengaged from god it was all based on law it wasn't based on grace so the prosecution begins verses seven and eight god says "Hear, O my people and i will speak O israel i will testify against you i am god your god not for your sacrifices do i rebuke you Your burnt offerings are continually before me. See, the the people of God were doing the right things. At least that's how it looked on the outside. That's how it looked externally. So God makes it clear that he's not judging them for their offerings. He's not judging them for their attendance in temple. And he's not judging them for any of their worship practices. Their acts of worship in and of themselves were not the problem here. The problem is that their worship was hollow. It lacked any kind of integrity. It completely misunderstood God. See, their attitude toward worship was, probably at one time, God, I love you. I know I desperately need you. Thank you for saving me. But somewhere along the way, it turned into, Here you go, God. You must need this from me. Somehow you must need me. See, they forgot who God was. So he says, verses 9 through 11, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine." See, do you see what God's saying here? He's telling Israel, hey, I don't find fault with the animal sacrifices you offer in worship. I find fault because your worship is no longer about thanking me and fellowshipping with me. Your worship has become about appeasing me while keeping me at arm's length. You've allowed your worship to turn into a religion of works, giving me my due as if I'm actually in need of anything. And he says, have you forgotten that every beast of the forest is mine, that the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to me? Have you forgotten that I own and care for all the birds and everything that moves? And he goes on in verses 12 and 13. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? like some divine sarcasm here right and what god's saying is hey you seem to have forgotten that i'm the all sufficient god and father who doesn't need anything including food especially food but even if i did need food what then what you think i'm going to ask you for some food i'm not like the so called gods of your past who you had to appease and who needed to eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats But you know what I do want from you? How about you stop living and worshiping as if I'm somehow dependent on you? And how about you start living and start worshiping with a life of gratitude and dependence on me? So he goes on in verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Todah, there's that word. And perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. See, God wanted then from his children Israel what he wants now from his saints in the church. He wants a life of deep intimacy, a life of deep communion with you where you abide in Christ, where you relate to him as a child relates to his father, not as one relates to a scary judge. See, the first part of verse 14 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Meaning that one of the things God wants are grateful hearts. He wants your grateful heart. Then he says, perform your vows to the Most High. So not only does he want your grateful heart, but God also wants your obedient will. He wants wills that are obedient, hearts that are grateful, wills that are obedient. And then verse verse 15, God says, Call upon me. Trust me. You'll see that I'm faithful to save you. I will deliver you. So in other words, God also wants lives that are dependent. See, what God truly desires from us are hearts that are grateful, wills that are obedient, and lives that are dependent. Hearts that are grateful for him, wills that are obedient to him, and lives that are dependent on him. See, this is a straightforward description of what our lives should look like, the kind of life that um, expresses uh, deep, genuine faith. But we failed. So many times we failed, just like the Jews did then. So, the good, just judge of heaven charges them. Behind their religious routine hid hollow worship, worship that was detached from gratitude, worship that was separated from humility. And then God brings a second charge against them. And the second charge is that beneath their righteous robes hid rebellious hearts. Beneath their righteous robes hid rebellious hearts. See, underneath their religious facade was nothing but hollow worship. See, there were were so many in the congregation who had rebellious hearts. So, in the courtroom of heaven, the judge continues. God continues. He says, let the record also show that the people disregard my ways in everyday living. There's a blatant disconnect between their words of praise and their deeds of of defiance. And he says in verse 16, he goes on, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Now, the wicked ones that God's addressing here aren't unbelievers. They're not the unbelieving heathen. They're those who professed faith in God. Remember, in the beginning, God called all of his children, all of his saints to gather. So these are kind of like the, the Sunday only Christians who live like a Monday morning atheist. Right on Sunday, you listen to to songs and and, and recite scripture and and even uh, mouth words of songs of praise, but then come Monday morning, you wake up and you live the rest of the week like a practical atheist, detached from God, unidentifiable from the believers around you, and your dim light is barely shining against the dark backdrop of the world around you. But like the covenant people of Israel had forgotten, and like... Some of us have forgotten proper living and proper worship are always connected. They're always connected. God sees beneath our, our robes of righteousness straight into our hearts of rebellion. And then he highlights three specific areas where for Israel where their hearts were rebellious. Stealing, adultery, and slander. So he says this in verses 18 through 20. He says, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. I love the way one translation uh, captures these verses. Listen, I'm going to read this translation. Uh, It's paraphrased this way: What are you up to? Quoting my laws, talking like we're good friends. You never answer the door when I called. You treat my words like garbage. If you find a thief, you make him your buddy. Adulterers are your friends of choice. Your mouth drools filth. Lying is a serious art form with you. You stab your own brother in the back and you rip off your own family members. See, the evidence that God brings forward conclusively demonstrates that the people were living as hypocrites. They put themselves on the throne of their own lives, living for their own gain, living for their own pleasure, their own popularity, rarely considering the good of others, and hardly ever considering how their lives could bring the most glory to God. So the judge concludes again Let the record show that behind your religious routines hid hollow worship. And beneath your righteous robes, I see hearts ruled by rebellion. You maintain some religious devotion, but your hearts have grown cold and distant. You claim my promises, but at the same time, you break my commands. You want my blessings, but you won't bow to my authority. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are filled with ingratitude, and they remain unchanged. Your own deeds testify against you, he concludes. So the courtroom has been set. The charges have been read. Then we turn to the third scene in this divine courtroom where the verdict is pronounced. Starting in verse 21. He says, These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. See, God tells, tells them while you were doing all those things, I remained silent and patient. I gave you every opportunity to repent, every opportunity to turn away from your shallow praise and your self-centered living. But you misunderstood my silence for approval. You misunderstood my patience for permission. Verse 22, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. In other words, the verdict has been rendered. You are all guilty. Guilty on all counts. The consequences for forgetting me and living in wickedness will be my judgment. Consider, mark these consequences of your sin and allow them to awaken repentance in your hard hearts. It's as if God's saying, because though my judgment is great, my mercy is more. Those who have forgotten me can still find forgiveness. See, the guilty verdict has been pronounced and the harsh warning of this verdict now finds a companion of hope in the final verse in verse 23 where the sentence is given because now in this next scene the sentence is given look at verse 23 the one who offers thanksgiving todah as his sacrifice glorifies me to one who orders his way rightly i will show the salvation of god See, God's covenant people were guilty of divorcing their worship from their lives. The evidence shows here that paying God lip service through rituals and song is not going to cover up ungrateful, disengaged, disinterested hearts. It shows that going through religious motions cannot replace an authentic relationship that we have with God. So today, we stand guilty as the Israelites did, guilty of empty worship, were guilty of distracted hearts, were guilty of ungrateful lives. But by God's grace, the story doesn't end there. See, between the empty rituals of Israel then, and between the empty religions of our day today, even the empty religious practices of our own lives, between those two things, there stands a hill called Calvary, amen? Amen? And on that hill stood a cross, and on that cross stood the Savior, crucified for our sins. See, although Jesus was completely innocent, when our righteous judge slammed down the gavel in his heavenly court and pronounced our guilt, Jesus stepped forward to answer the charges for us. Our sentence was death, because death is the just sentence of a just and holy God. But the Son of God approaches the bench, draws close to the judge, gets the judge's ear, and says, Dad, this one's on me. I'll take care of it for them. that's exactly what Christ did on the cross for us. Amen? Amen? See, though we're prone to thankless living, Jesus gave himself in grateful obedience to the Father for us. So in a moment, we're going to express gratitude. We're going to say thanks to God by observing communion. And as we prepare then to take communion, let's reflect on the surpassing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ that's revealed in the cross. Because while the Israelites brought hollow offerings, while so much of our worship is empty rituals, Jesus offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for us. He fulfilled the perfect life of worship for us, the perfect life of worship and praise that none of us could ever fulfill in our own strength. And he demonstrated then his victory over sin and death by being raised from the grave three days later. So because of his atoning work, we've been reconciled, made right with the Father. Our guilt Has been cleansed and we've been clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. So, in the broken bread, when we take communion, we remember the body of Jesus given for us. And in the cup, we remember His blood that was poured out for us. So, our best response to God, the the right response to this great God, is awestruck gratitude and surrender. That's the best response. So as we take communion, let's respond to God's grace as Christ did with profound gratitude that will lead to lives of daily praise and obedience and surrender. See, in many ways, this psalm is a call for covenant renewal, remembering afresh Jesus' sacrifice remembering that he's sufficient for every one of our failures, every one of our flaws, every one of our shortcomings, every one of our sins, all of our rebellion, Jesus forgave, paid for, and cast as far as the east is from the west. See, the fruit of genuine faith is a life of grateful praise. Heavenly Father, now as we come before you and observe this ordinance, God, I pray, Lord, that even in these moments you would renew within each one of us grateful hearts. Lord, that we would leave here not just motivated uh, in our minds, Lord, but ultimately empowered um, by your spirit um, to live grateful lives. Of praise Lord we are so so thankful for the work of Jesus on our behalf Lord that we would be doomed to your judgment if it wasn't for Christ stepping up and taking the penalty for us thank you Jesus